moving forward in a series that we've been on. Uh, we just started last week called What Does God Want for Christmas? How many of you are knee deep in prepping for Christmas with Christmas lists? And how many, just all the, the men in the building, how many of you, for you men, it's a stressful time, right? Because, yes, thank you, David. I, he got his hand way up there. <laughs> testify because it is it's a stressful time because you know you want to get your wife the perfect gift but you're a man and so you don't know what the perfect gift is right hey babe I bought you a, a subscription to ESPN magazine this year you're gonna love it you know and uh, my wife's looking at me sorry babe anyways uh, it's, it's tough to, to get the perfect gifts and my wife is awesome she is like a gift list machine with all the people that we have to buy for in our family and uh, she does a, a fantastic job and we get good deals. We're bargain shoppers. Anybody else here? You know, I told somebody, like, hey, we know you're frugal. And they were like, oh. And I said, no, for me, that's a, that's a compliment, right? I'm frugal, right? You know, I open my wallet and butterfly, or moths fly out, you know. Uh, I'm just teasing. But I love uh, getting the right thing for my wife for Christmas. And, you know, when you're in that process of buying gifts for people, it can be pretty stressful. And we spend a lot of times. And I even worry about what am I going to get for Christmas? What do, what do I want? You know, what do I want to get? What, what, what do I need? You know, I don't need anything, but I want some stuff. And, uh, and it occurred to me as I was thinking about the whole Christmas list conundrum that we oftentimes fail to think about God, even in a season in which, we, you know, the, it's sort of cliche, but it's true. The meaning, for the, the meaning of the season, right? The reason for the season is Jesus. And this series is kind of based out of this thought, what does God want for Christmas? If God were to have a Christmas list, what would be on that Christmas list? And we talked last week about having an attitude and a heart of worship, living our entire life as an act of worship to God. And uh, this week, we're going to jump into a passage of Scripture. It's Micah chapter 6, and we're going to start at verse 3. But we're going to look at this passage of Scripture that really is speaking to this exact issue. If God were to say, this is what I want, if God were to say, this is what I desire, this is what is on my list, not just for Christmas, but all the time, what would, what would it be, all right? So we're going to jump into this. Now, it's very interesting in the book of Micah. Micah is a prophetic book. Uh, some of you maybe uh, know the Bible. You've had experience in Sunday school and grew up in church or whatever, and we'll pray for you to have all the demons cast out from that and the, psycho- the, the counseling you need. But uh, the rest of you that maybe didn't you know, grow up in church or whatever, uh, I just want to give you some background here. So Micah uh, was a prophet to the nation of Israel. And uh, Micah wrote thousands of years ago, this was a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus, and Micah sets up this prophetic word in his, in his writings here, and, and it's basically, to get the right imagery here, it's a court, courtroom drama. How many of you like Matlock, right? Anybody a Matlock fan? Come on, that's daytime TV back in the day, Matlock. Dude was legit. He comes in and solves the case, and he just, he does all the gotcha things. You know, they're on the stand, and the person who's, you know, the witness, they're actually guilty, and then he gets them convicted, and that's not how it works in real life, but he matlocks them, right? But I love, you like courtroom drama, right? John Grisham stuff, you read that? Well, this is a courtroom drama, and it's God versus the people of Israel. God versus his people, and Micah sets it up here in chapter 6, verse 3. And God is speaking. He says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me, for I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, Aaron and, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to curse, have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness? 
God's saying, don't you remember what I've done for you? Don't you remember that I brought you out of slavery? Uh, What's going on? Why are you tired of me? What's going on? And the people respond. They say, oh no, God's mad at us. He's bringing a case against us. And they say in verse 6, what can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? If you're Italian, you like 10,000 rivers of olive oil. Italians, we just drink olive oil, you know, go on a run. It's a Gatorade bottle, it's just olive oil, you know, just running along. They say in verse 7, should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? Now I want to point something out here that this is a perfect expression of what happens when we put a religious mindset on something that was meant to be a relationship. God says, don't you remember that I brought you up out of Egypt? Don't you remember that I cared for you? Don't you remember my faithfulness? And their response isn't, God, we need a relationship with you. It's, God, what can we do to appease your wrath? God, what religious activities can we engage in? Maybe if if sacrifice is good, we'll sacrifice our kids. That will really show you, God, how much we love you. That will really show you, God, how much we care uh, about you. They're missing the point here completely. Religion always wants to do more as opposed to connecting relationally with God. And God comes back and he responds and he says this. No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. The next three weeks, we're going to unpack this scripture verse and look at it. It's God's Christmas list. God, if I, was, if I was giving you something that you wanted, if I was responding in this way to offer something to you that would be pleasing to you, what would it be? He says, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Father, we invite you in this place this morning to speak to our hearts. God, to open our minds. Let us be good soil to receive what you want to speak to us today. God, help us to, to, to not go to the left or the right, but to be right in the center of what you want us to connect with today. And Lord, to leave here more relationally connected with you, more in, in an understanding of your grace and your mercy and what it means to walk with you. Father, we give you this time in Jesus' name. What does God want for Christmas? He wants righteousness. Number one out of this list, to do what is right. To do what is right. God says, I want you to do the right thing. And what this means here isn't just to do the right thing universally in all situations, but it's actually talking about doing the right thing by God and by others, right? You ever heard somebody say, oh, they they did me wrong, right? And somebody pulled one over on me. They cheated me at cards. That's when I played Justin Crossland at cards. He's a card cheat, you know, I just have to say. It's true. It's not true at all. No way. And he can beat me up, so I, you know, he can cheat at me if he wants, but... They did me wrong, right? And, and God's saying, look, don't, don't do other people wrong and don't do me wrong. Righteousness is to do the right thing. And God wants us to do that. And we see this actually laid out in a simpler way by Jesus, even reflecting back to this passage of Scripture. But someone once came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what are the great, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What, what's the, you know, Jesus, make it simple for me. Sum it up. And Jesus says, well, the first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everybody nods along. And he says, and the second commandment is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And the implication there is that how we love other people and how we operate with other people is really how we're operating and dealing with God. And and there's more to this that you can see in the New Testament in the words of Christ. But the degree to which I fulfill the second great commandment of loving my neighbor is really the degree to which I love God. And that's kind of the spirit of this, that God wants us to do what is right. Do what is right for God and also for others. In the message translation of Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says, He's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, 31, it's called the golden rule. He said, do to others as you would like them to do to you. And it's funny because that seems very cliche, but you know how powerful, how amazingly the world would change if we operated by this, this commandment? I mean, if I could just get my three kids to operate by this commandment, life would be so much better. We get in the car, and, you know, now Penny, her little pudgy arms are long enough to get to Evie. So we have, you know, a tiny car, and, the, and we have three kids. They're squeezed in there like sausage in the casing, you know. Three little, you know, Scottish-German children just back there in the back seat. And we've layered them in there, and people are like, why don't you get a new car? Remember I told you, moths flying out of the, the wallet. But anyways... They're back there, and so Jack, he's got his pudgy little hands on one side, and then Evie's got her bony elbow weapons, and then Penny's got her pudgy little hands on that side, and now they can all touch each other, right? Mom, Penny's touching me. Mom, Jack's touching me. No, I'm not. (laughs) I farted, you know, and everything going on back there. And if we could just say, please, do to your sister what you want your sister to do to you. Do you want somebody to put their slimy peanut butter and jelly finger in your ear? No, then don't do it to someone else. Can we live by this principle? How many of you would say, even even just in society at large, if we would just do unto others as we would have them do unto us, the world would be a different place? Well, it starts with you and me. To connect with the words of Christ and connect with this to do what is right. And really what this means is not just kind of thinking about it, and I guess sometimes I'll do what's right and sometimes I won't. It's, a, it's about a fundamental shift in the way that I view the world and the way that I view my place in the world and how I operate and live my life. For a while, Bethany and I, uh, years ago, we were leading an, a college internship group, and, and I remember one year we, we started this little thing, and, and we heard it from somewhere else, but I don't remember where, but we started this thing in our group that was called this, You Are More Important Than Me. You know, our culture is obsessed with the, the worth and the value. Everybody is trained, well, you have to learn to love yourself, and you have to learn to value yourself. And I understand there's situations that are abusive and somebody needs to get good self-esteem. But typically that's horrible advice because most of us are experts at loving ourselves. Even when we're miserable, we're doing it because of ourselves, right? It, I, I'm enjoying my pity party. I'm enjoying my thing that's going on here. But, but this, 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 this thing that we embraced was you are more important than me was kind of a way of life. It was kind of a philosophy, a fundamental shift. We said to our students, what if you just put the other person first? What if when you got in line for food, you didn't say, well, me first, I got here first. What if you step back and let the, 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 the other people go first? What would happen if when you were going to, to get in the car, you said, uh, I don't call shock and I call the back seat, Right? And you started to shift the way that you lived, and you said, you are more important than me. And I want to tell you that it was a powerful time. You know, I remember, I remember our group at the time, they were, they were being jerks. These college students, they were just being jerks to each other. And so we, we began to, to, to layer this in, and, and they began to embrace it, and it absolutely transformed the culture and the atmosphere in that group. What if we took that kind of a mindset? 
And this is what God says I want. I want righteousness. I want you to do what is right for me and for others. What would happen if we said you're more important than me? And we began to live other people first. Paul talked about this to the Philippian church in his letter. In Philippians 2, he wrote this. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Can we switch? Can we have a shift to other-centric thinking? Not just me first, me at the center of the world, but thinking about others. So you might be asking, well, Pastor Jake, are you just saying in this message that God just wants us to do the right thing? So basically, you know, everybody go out and be nice and don't throw sand on the other kids in the sandbox, right? No, that's not it, actually. It's not it. Would the world be better if we followed this commandment? Yes. Would it be a better place if we all just embraced what Jesus said? Absolutely. But there's a heart behind this that speaks to a deeper level because the reality is that you and I, in and of ourselves, are not capable of consistent righteousness. Let me throw this out there to you. I didn't say we're not. We are capable of, of independent actions of goodness. Right? Some of the be- you know, do you know that Hitler, not everything Hitler did was evil? There were some, some things that Hitler did that weren't evil. Like Hitler brushed his teeth in the morning, I assume. That's neither an evil, it's an amoral action, right? Actually, it is evil. Some people's breath is so bad, they should you know, go ahead and do that as an act of goodness towards the world. But let me just throw this out there. I, I, it, not every single thing that Adolf Hitler did in his entire life was an evil action. So why, would, why do we say he was an evil man? Because his heart was evil. Right? Because his, what he did in his life, his actions, we were able to say, that guy has a rotten root. What's going on on the inside has produced some negative behavior, but not everything was bad. And yet we look at ourselves and we say, yeah, but see, I've done a couple of good things. Doesn't that mean I'm a good person? I'm basically a good person. <clears throat> Wrong. Because God says, look, all have fallen short. If you're not perfect, you've fallen short of God's standard. And what's, what that's being said is not that you always fall short in all situations. It's that by and large, you fall short because the root of you is wrong. This is what we talk about when we talk about the fall of man. The fall of man is not a bad decision or a bad action. And God got really mad and said, get out of the garden. The fall of man was the fundamental shifting of our soul to be twisted so that even when we do good, it's oftentimes from a wrong motivation. It's that at the bottom level of who we are, we're rotten, we're not good. Now, you can say, well, I disagree with that, whatever. Well, I'm, I'm preaching today, so I can say this. <laughs> that is the human condition. That's why, no matter who is president, things won't be perfect. That's why, no matter who is the principal of the school, or who's the teacher, or how good mom and dad are, or whatever, at the bottom level, if this reality that Scripture teaches us about is, 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 is the reality that we are fallen then what we're going to experience is that even though I intellectually know that doing the right thing will make my life and the lives of those around me better, I'm incapable of doing it. And therefore, righteousness is not just doing what's right. One at a time, one action at a time. Righteousness is not just doing the right thing. It's also doing the right thing for the right reasons. It's doing the right thing, yes, but it's doing the right thing from the right heart. It's doing the right thing for the right reason. It's doing the right thing from the proper motivation. People say, God wants your heart. Oh, God wants your heart. All he cares about is your heart. That's absolutely true, because if your heart is good, the actions are going to change on the outside. 
Righteousness. God says, I want my people to do what is right. I don't want your firstborn children. I don't want your 10,000 rivers of olive oil. Keep the oil. Do what is right. Keep the oil. Change your heart. If God gets your heart, he gets your oil. He gets your firstborn. He gets it all if he has your heart. Do what is right. It's not just doing what's right. It's doing what's right for the right reason. God's not looking for people to just go through the motions. I remember when I was a kid, I was about eight or nine years old, I think, and I was husky, as they say. And I went to gymnastics class. And so, you know, I, I, I was going to go to gym. I heard some chuckles. Yeah, it is as ridiculous as it looks. Yes. And uh, they don't make pants for people like me to do gymnastics in. Okay. Um, anyways, I go to gymnastics class. And I'm going to be honest with you. My heart was not in it. I was there for the trampoline. Right? Anybody been to like a gymnastics gym? And they've got incredible trampolines. And I don't know about you, but I'm a trampoline guy. I just like a good trampoline, you know, from time to time, where I can jump and fly like a bird, you know? And anyways, I grew up and we had a, we had a big trampoline. And uh, we should get trampolines for the kids' ministry. That'd be pretty... Oh, no, okay, sorry, no. Bethany's, she's waving me off. Our insurance agent just died somewhere. Um, anyways... There's a, there was a trampoline at the gymnastics gym, and I remember going in, and they're like, well, you know, first you're going to tumble on the mat and do somersaults and all this kind of stuff, and all these, like, chipper guys and girls are just like, we've got magic to do, you know, and they're doing somersaults, and I'm just like, I was a curmudgeonly nine-year-old, you know, and I, I got over, I think I, I think I did one somersault the entire time at gymnastics, because I was just going through the motions, why? Because my heart was in the trampoline, so when it was trampoline time, I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> ready to go, or the big giant foam pit, because that's awesome as well, in conjunction with the trampoline. I was just going through the motions, my heart was not in it, so even though I maybe was doing the, 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 the somersaulting, I mean, I really never, barely did it at all, I think I only went to gymnastics class twice. Because even the trampoline wasn't enough to make me do the things they were asking me to do. There was no passion or desire. There was no passion or desire. Now, I want you to think about that principle or that idea in the context of marriage. How would you like it if your husband or your wife was like, I've done my duty. That's all you need to worry about. You're like, well, where's the passion? The passion is in the duty. Where's the, where's the desire? Where's the intimacy? Where's the magic? Where's the mojo? No, it's just all duty. I've given you, you know, the appropriate marital kiss in the morning, and, uh, you know, I brushed my hair, and I brought home the check, and that, we realize that's an empty sort of a life. Even if a husband or a wife was doing all the things that they needed to do that externally were, were aspects of a healthy marriage, if the heart isn't there, we, we, we go, ooh, that's, that's not good, Right? How many of you would say, like, my, my goal is to have a loveless marriage? Where all the passion, it's all just pure duty. I do my duty for my wife, she does her duty for me, and we go along. No, that's, that sounds terrible. And yet a lot of people are happy to have that relationship with God. Why do you think our church is called Joy? Not just because, it's not the coolest name. We had cooler names thought up, you know, like Extreme Church. You know. <laughs> Every 1990s youth ministry was called extreme with an X, you know. We're so extreme we don't even put the E on the front. And uh, no, you know, why are we called Joy Church? Because joy is a uniquely Christian experience. It's, it's, it's the reality that even in the midst of 
really terrible circumstances, having God, a relationship with him, you, you can have a smile in your soul, even if there's not a smile on your face. And if you're going to be, you know, if you know God, God is, is, is a God of mirth, right? There's so much pain and, you know, there's so much pain in the world, but do you know that God is even working through all that pain to bring us into tremendous joy, that the end of the story isn't that we're all miserably sitting in heaven as fat little angels singing stupid songs that we hate with harp. You know, that's not how it goes. I used to dread heaven when I was a kid because I thought I was going to be a fat little baby and play, you know, terrible top 25 Christian worship songs all of my life. Just, you know, I worship God, so all we do is worship God forever. And I grew up in church and I was like, I don't want to worship God forever. I want to fly. Where's the trampolines, God? You know? Joy. When you know God, it's not, it's not going to be boring in heaven. And church shouldn't be boring now. Right? Somebody go buy some popcorn. Let's have a good time. I don't want to pay for it. It's too expensive. But anyways, you know, joy. We don't want a marriage of duty without love. We don't want a relationship with God that's joyless. Why do a lot of people not, aren't, why are they not interested? Because they think that Christianity is this system in which they have to give 10,000 rivers of olive oil to make God happy. And yet God is saying, that's not it. Yeah, I want you to do what's right, but I want you to want it. I want you to want it. I want you to be invested emotionally with passion, with desire. Come on. Isaiah chapter 29, 13. And so the Lord says, these people, they say they are mine they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. And God doesn't want that. God wants you to do the right thing, absolutely. But he wants you to do the right thing for the right reason. He wants right behavior flowing from right motivation. He wants external obedience that flows from inner devotion. God doesn't just want me to, to pray because I'm supposed to pray. He wants me to pray because I, I hunger for his fellowship. God wants us to worship not because the song is our favorite song, but because God is our favorite God. Because he's worth it. Because he's valuable. So how do we get there from here? I want to give you three practical principles today, and then we'll go beat the Baptist to Burger Doodle and get something good to eat. Just kidding. Sorry, I'm sure there's some Baptists here, but we're going to... We're going to beat them to the best restaurants. <laughs> we strategically end an hour and 15 minutes because if you, and I'm just saying, if you notice, you get to the restaurants and then you beat the crowd and then just smirk at them. You know? <laughs> Should have come to Joy Church. Yeah. We get out early. Okay. You having a good time? All right, good. Three practical principles. Number one, good fruit only comes from a good root. Good fruit only comes from a good root. Jesus said, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart, he brings forth good. The evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. What's on the inside is going to manifest on the outside. So when we approach this question of, God, I want to give you right behavior. I want to I be a righteous person. I want to do what is right. I need to understand that if I am so focused on fruit and I ignore root, that I will never get there from here. I will never get there from here. I need a new heart. 
When we talk in, in Christianity, maybe you've heard this, maybe this for you is kind of, it sounds like a religious statement, but when we say, you need to be born again, or you, you need to give your heart to Christ, what's trying to be expressed in words that are not powerful enough to convey the depth of this is that you actually have to transform from the inside out. That you can't just say, well, I'm going to sort of step into church and copy people and, oh, they're lifting their hands and, oh, we, we sing oh, oh, oh right here in the song. You know, as in all Christian worship songs, oh, oh, we always sing oh, oh, oh. I don't know what the theological significance is. But you can copy what, what Christians do and not have what Christians have. Because real, uh, what, what a Christian is is somebody who has been rebirthed, reborn, regenerated, a new heart. So even though their actions actually still sometimes don't reflect that, there's a different root system that's taking place. When Christ has your heart, he's controlling that central system. And so therefore, we need to be more concerned with root renewal than fruit removal. We need to be more concerned with root renewal than fruit removal. One treats the symptom while the other treats the source. One treats the system while the other treats the source. I remember, this is a, kind of a gross story, but I remember when I was uh, dating my wife and she had just moved into what was called the girls' house at Joy down in Medford. And this house had been a rental house and these girls were moving in and we found out that the house was full of fleas. Like, disgustingly, absolutely, you walked in and, you know, the fleas were like, what are you doing here? You know, there's a flea in the corner smoking. What? You know? They were, they, that was their place. And I remember, you know, one, one day, we didn't know there was fleas, so we go, they had moved their stuff in, and, and all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're leaving, and, and I think Bethany goes, oh, there's fleas on me or something, and my sister's like, ah! And she starts freaking out, and she's in the back of the car, stripping herself down, <laughs> trying to get all the fleas off, you know, and we're just like, it was, it was terrible. Anyways, and amazing at the same time. What wouldn't have worked in this scenario is to just take all the individual fleas. Oh, we have a flea on you. Get rid of it, right? That's not how we deal with it. What do we need to do? We need to bomb that thing. We did like nuclear bomb flea treatments, you know. We had to, I think, go get a permit for the kind of things we were going to do to that house. But it was about root renewal, heart change, transformation, not picking fruit off the tree. It's like going out to an app. The way we treat this, this concept of righteousness is we, we, it's, it's like, imagine going to an orchard and going up to an apple tree and being like, well, I picked all the apples off. Where are the oranges? It doesn't work that way. Well, I picked them all off. There are no apples anywhere around this tree. Yeah, but it's an apple tree. So if your heart is still inclined towards wickedness, towards not doing the right thing, towards not putting uh, other people ahead of yourself, then what happens is you can... You can get really, really good, even elite, at fruit removal and completely miss the point and be miserable and still have the wrong fruit come out from time to time because the root has not changed. And thus, we need Christ to change us from the inside out. One of the fundamental aspects of Christianity is this admission that I don't have it, I can't do it on my own, I need Jesus. I need him to transform me. It's a, it's a mystery how he does it, but he does it. If you ask him to come into your life and you give him uh, your life, you give him your heart, he will come in and begin to transform you. And how many of you have experienced that Jesus is now at work in you and you see, you begin to see there's a change that comes 
from the inside out. There's hope to break addictions. There's hope to break long-held iniquitous roots. There's hope to break things that are locked onto your life from family. There's hope to have freedom in Jesus, but it has to start from the inside out. And so it's about, fr- it's about root renewal, not fruit removal. Number two, love compels us more than law. You see, again, we all know generally what is right and what is wrong. Should I put my finger in my sister's ear in the car? No, but I want to. And knowledge alone is not sufficient. And this is what the New Testament is full of writers who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, communicate this truth that we know the right thing to do. I'm going to read you a scripture in a few minutes about that. We know what's right, but I'm incapable of doing it. Knowing and doing, are there's a vast gulf between those two things, right? I know there are certain things that if I did would make my marriage better, and yet I don't do them because I'm lazy or selfish or whatever. But what compels us? Is it the law? Is it knowing what's right and wrong? No, the law does not compel us. Love compels us. I remember when Bethany and I were engaged, and we, I had a, purchased a condo, and it was a rental, and we were going to turn it into the place that we lived. And so we went in, and it had like, like electric blue carpet or something, right? It was really bright, nasty blue carpet with pink bleach stains all over. Might be cool now, actually, but it wasn't cool then. It was very 1996 or 95, whatever. It was just, it was dated. And so we go in, and we're going to put a new floor in. And so we decided we're going to put in a hardwood or laminate floor. And the only problem was we didn't have any money, so we had to do it ourselves. So I remember working brutally hard, long hours. It was Bethany and her dad and me and who, I mean, a bunch of people helped. But we put this floor in, and it was awesome, but it stunk. Like, it was not fun. And any of you know, that know me know that I avoid these kinds of things. Not just because of laziness, but also because of a complete and utter lack of skill and ability. But anyways, I was there, and I'm, I'm working on this, this floor, and it was really hard. And I remember that at the same time, I was having very cold feet, and I just, you know, very scared to commit because I understood the seriousness of marriage. I knew it's this lifelong commitment, and that meant so much to me. And I, I loved Bethany, but I was having all these second thoughts. And I remember one night sitting in my mom's chair, in her rocking chair, and my dad was there, I think, and my mom, and then my sister was there. And I was like, I don't know about, you know, I'm scared. I'm scared to get married. And Natalie goes, Jake, yeah. Think about what you're doing right now. Hmm? You are working on your hands and knees, putting in a floor for Bethany. You would never do that. <laughs> and I realized I love her. I am compelled to do what I would not do. Love created a power, listen to this statement love created a powerful motivation to do something I had no desire to do. With profound joy. Love created a powerful motivation to do something I had no desire to do and to do it with profound joy. I remember laughing and joking, having fun, putting in this floor, even though the work was backbreaking, even though it was uncomfortable, even though I didn't want to be doing the floor. I, the, the floor wasn't the point, it was the, my bride was the point. And when you capture this concept, you understand. how we're supposed to be motivated as followers of Jesus. Not just knowing what's right, but a love, an abiding passion. We have to shift our thinking from don't, don't, don't to do, do, do. 
I need a passion for God and a positive vision of Jesus. When you connect with who God is, that the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, that he formed and fashioned us with his hands, everything else he made with his words, but he actually formed us with his hands and he made us for relationship with him. And you begin, and you begin to grasp who God is and you begin to get a revelation of his character and you enter into a relationship with him, you can get captivated with this incredible pursuit of God. And that is what will push you through doing things that you would not do for the very strictest religious reasons. I could just tell you right now that I make choices actively and, and often in my life to, to deny myself and certain aspects or attributes of life or behavior, things that other people enjoy that just to me, they, they're, they're, they're meaningless because I see the prize out in front of me. When you talk about this kind of a heart for Christ, that is what will compel you so much more than law. But so many Christians are still in the like, well, I just do it because I have to do it, even though I hate it. And I don't want to do it. And why do you think people don't want to go to church? Because they look at that and they go, I have enough of that in my life. That's how my job is. That's how my marriage is. That's how my relationship with my kids is. That's how my relationship with my family was. I don't need more duties. I don't need more restrictions. I don't need more laws on my head. I don't need to carry more weight. And then Jesus says, look, my burden is easy to carry. Is there a burden? Yes. But it's easy to carry. Why? Because of love. Because love compels us to do things that we might have no desire to do. Right? No desire to do. Even, but, but we do it. Why? Because of love. And then we also, in doing it, have profound joy. This morning we were setting up the kids' class and, and it was Bethany and I and, and the other volunteers hadn't, hadn't arrived in that area. So there's a lot of people that help, so I don't mean to make this sound like we're complaining about doing something. But it was just Bethany and I and our three kids and there was other volunteers in here. And we started singing, I got this feeling down in my bones. It goes electric, baby. Is that okay? When I turn it on, all through my city. All right, come on. Hey, come on. All right. Can I join the worship team, Judah? Okay. Um, but we're singing and are dancing. Our Penny, she's, you know, her little chubby dance. She's doing her dance and now she jumps, you know. And here's what we want to, what we want to convey. Here's what I want my kids to understand. Mom and dad are here early in the morning setting stuff up. This isn't something we do for fun, okay? But we have profound joy. Why? Because this is for Jesus. Everything that you do as a follower of Christ, when you love God, you do it with joy. You'll serve people. You'll go do things you didn't even imagine you'd want to do. You'll be down there at the soup kitchen. Want some more soup? You know, ah, hey, you know. You'll do so many things. You'll be in the nursery and a kid will snot all over your jacket that you paid $200 for. And hey, you know, profound joy. Why? Because of profound love. Because love compels more than law. And lastly, and I know that we're encroaching on our beat the Baptist to the restaurant time. So lastly, you can't do this. But Jesus can you cannot do this. You can't. You just can't. You don't have the strength, the power, the energy, the, the, the motivation, the right heart, the right root system. I don't have it. You don't have it. We don't have it natively. But Christ in us can do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
That verse is misappropriated often to mean score touchdowns and, you know, do great things. Actually, Paul was talking about in the context of suffering. When life is really miserable, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's where that verse comes into play. Wherever you are, whatever circumstance you're in, through Christ, you can accomplish great things. You can't do this, but Christ in you can. Now, let's finish up this, and I, and I want to uh, just read something here from, from the Apostle Paul. Paul was an incredible guy. He wrote half the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He went on world missions. He had an incredible conversion story. The Apostle Paul was an amazing guy. And yet we see this very candid moment in Romans chapter 7. He says this. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. This doesn't preach on TBN, this, this kind of stuff. He says, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. Anybody else? You're the Apostle Paul. You're supposed to be perfect. He said, I'm not. I'm too human. I'm a slave to sin. That's my default mode of operation. Verse 15, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. How many of you find yourself in this scenario more than you wish to admit? Well, I know what to do, but I'm going to do the thing. I I don't even want to do it, but I do it. Verse 21, I've discovered this principle of life, he says, that when I, do, when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. And he speaks very clearly and impacting. He speaks very clearly to this reality that we encounter that there is a war on the inside. There's a battle on the inside of each and every one of us, isn't there? And we wrestle with it. Well, I love my wife but she looks really good. Well, I love my kids, but that tastes really good. It makes me feel good. Well, I, I don't want to hurt my, my, my other employees, but if I, cheated, you know, if I cheated on my taxes, we could get from here to there. And there's a war on the inside. And Paul is speaking to this. And this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God, the answer is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank God, the answer is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Giving in the offering doesn't make you a Christian. Lifting your hands in worship doesn't make you a Christian. Knowing all the songs, that doesn't. The answer is in Christ. If you walked out of this building here today, this movie theater, And you said, I'm not going to go to Joy Church, but you encountered Jesus Christ. Get planted somewhere. But but you encountered Jesus Christ. That's a win for your life. The answer is in Christ Jesus, our, our Lord. And he says, so you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. And probably my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I say this all the time because I, I love the Bible. But... Romans chapter 1, or Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin. Because you belong to Jesus, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. In other words, you can know what's wrong and still not be able to do it. You can know what's right and still not be able to do it. So God did what the law could not do. Come on, that is 
pretty awesome. God with the perfect standards and God with his total righteousness and his absolute right to just cast us away for failing, he said, they can't do it, so I have to do it. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. Jesus came and was born. This is what Christmas is all about. He was incarnated. He was put into flesh. He took on human body and he took on the human condition of temptation even though he was without sin but he took on the trials and tribulations and the mockery and the rejection he took on the the bad circumstances and he he lived through that and in that body God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins Jesus was the world's greatest and most clever and most powerful and most effective Trojan horse. Because in the moment when Satan thought he had won, all of the sudden, somebody tapped him on the shoulder and said, gotcha. And Jesus said, give me the keys to death. And, and, And this power of sin that has enslaved the human race, now there's a way out of that. Now, it's not just knowing, but when you fall in love with Jesus, when you give Him your life, now not only is there a, it's not a theological power, it's an actual power. It's a real power of sanctification that comes, that the Spirit of the living God, the Scriptures say that the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells inside of us. And you and I can know that power and operate in that power and walk in that power. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? No. It does not mean we're going to be perfect. What it means is that sin no longer is the master. There is now, now there's a chance in that fight. And you know what? That fight is going to be won ultimately when Jesus at the very end even defeats death itself. And we are resurrected and reborn and no, sin no longer even has a place to put its hand on our life. But until we get to that point, you can know the power, the love, the joy of God. His love inside of you can compel you to do things that you wouldn't even imagine that you could do. To love people in a way that you could never imagine you could love. To do the right thing in the eyes of God and with other people. And the world needs Christians to be an example of what righteousness looks like. Not from some religious duty, but from a deep and abiding and compelling sense of purpose and love in God. Come on. The most righteous people are not the ones that just do the right thing. They're the ones that do the right thing for the right reasons because Jesus is on the inside. And the more that you can see Him in my life, the more that you can see Him in our lives, that's what changes things. Do what is right. Do what is right, but for the right reasons. 